chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking really hard at the first three verses in that chapter this morning. But I'm going to start our study of these three verses by reading to you a story from John chapter 3. You don't necessarily need to turn there. If you want to be in both places, that's fine. But John chapter 3, this is familiar to you, but I want to read it to start our sermon time uh, this morning. And I don't know who is in control of lights, but I'd love for them to be on. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So twice in our study of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter uses the language of John chapter 3. The language of being born again. Chapter 1 verse 3, Peter writes, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again. And then in chapter 1, verse 22, he says again to the church, Hey, since you've been born again, and he goes on to give them some imperatives. And just so you know, I find the concept of being born again, what theologians call regeneration, I find it sometimes difficult to explain. And in our series thus far, I I don't know that I've done a really good job of telling you what happens at the new birth. You know, I've mentioned it several times. I'm hoping you've grasped some aspects of it, but, it, but it's so utterly important. I'm going to take just a little time on the front end of this sermon and try to encapsulate it for you. And here's what you must understand. Apart from God, we are spiritually dead in our sins. That means our selfishness and our rebellion It dominates us. And this is why relationships are so hard. And this is why sin is rampant in our our culture and violence is everywhere and people are enslaved and there's this sort of cultural death spiral going on. We are physically breathing, but apart from God, we are spiritually dead. The scripture tells us we are by nature children of wrath. And our rebellion is so deep that we do not detect or desire the glory of Christ displayed in the gospel. We don't. We don't want it, and at times we even mock it. Therefore, if we're going to be born again, if we're going to be given new birth in Christ, if we're going to move from death to life, it will rely decisively and ultimately on God and his grace. 
Just as our physical birth was somewhat of a miracle, so our spiritual birth will be also. Which means this, that his decision to make us alive will not be a response to what we as spiritual corpses do. No, no, no. It will be a response to his work in making us alive. And for most people, at least at first, that is an unsettling truth. People think they choose God's grace, but the truth is God's grace chooses people. Sinful, reckless, selfish people. God puts his love and favor upon them, upon you. The book of Ephesians tells us this in chapter 1. But God being rich, or excuse me, chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. I about fell off the stage. You have been saved. (laughs) By grace you have been saved. So let's now turn to that question. What happens in the new birth? What is going on in us when we are born again? I'll try to put that answer in just three short statements this morning so we can get going with our text. First, what happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. You aren't born again because you simply prefer Christianity, or because you value church attendance, or because you are really on board with Judeo-Christian ethics. You are born again because something profound happened in you and caused you to put all your hope in Jesus Christ. You come to understand that Christ is life to you, and since Christ is your life, your life of spiritual death and decay has been replaced with the life of Christ in you. We sang about that this morning. Scripture says it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So not getting new religion, but new life. Second, what happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. The new birth is not natural. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus here in John chapter 3. It's not natural. It's supernatural. So it's not just saying, as Nicodemus is saying, yes, I believe, Jesus, you're doing miracles, and you are in some way, shape, or form divine. That's not the new birth. The new birth is experiencing that supernatural power, not just observing it, but experiencing it in your life. God the Holy Spirit comes upon you and brings a whole new creation into existence. Third, what happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but it's the creation of a new human nature. A nature, by the way, that is really you. A nature who is forgiven and cleansed, and a nature that is thoroughly new, being, being formed by the indwelling Spirit of God. The Spirit, the Spirit doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you just a better version of you. The Spirit makes you new. That's why Ezekiel speaks of a new heart and, and, and a new spirit in verse 26 and 27 of the, of the chapter in Ezekiel that I read last week. You remember the prophet wrote these words from God that that God was, was promising this in future generations. He says, I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a new covenant description of being born again of new birth. Again, you see, Jesus doesn't make you better. He makes you new. He takes your life, and he, and he makes it something you could have never made it. That's what happens at regeneration. That's why we must be born again. It happens through the Spirit's power and by means of the Word of God. That's essentially what verses 22 through 25 of 1 Peter chapter 1 explain, that through the living and abiding, imperishable Word of God, You have been born again. And that word, it came to you as the gospel that was preached to you. So in that very verse, you see just how powerful gospel preaching really is. It is used by God to move hell-bound sinners from death to life, from being spiritual corpses to being born again. This is what's happened to me. Has it happened to you? Guess what's happened to me? Uh, you know, over the span of a couple of years at, at Owasso Junior High School, of all places, I kept hearing the gospel preached. I kept hearing about my need for a Savior. I kept hearing that, that God loved me and sent his son to die for me. I kept hearing that I could have eternal life with God if I put my trust in Jesus Christ. And you know, it wasn't like a lightning bolt. It was more like a long fuse. I kept hearing this and hearing this, and understanding this, and was born again, putting my faith in Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a short time. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time, decades in fact. And you're hearing this, and you're hearing this, and we've talked about a Savior, and we've talked about sin, and we've talked about your need And we've talked about repentance. And that long fuse is now coming to the end. The Spirit's drawing you. And you are experiencing the new birth. That's happening, man. Just throw yourself at the feet of Christ. Just throw all your weight, all your trust upon the cross of Christ. Depend on Christ today. Don't put that off anymore. Don't drift back away from that only to be drawn back in experience the new birth. All right, with all of that, let's read this morning's sermon text together. 1 Peter chapter 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes these words. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word for us this morning. So as you look at your notes, you see, I didn't really put together an outline today. You know, I had to step away from my incessant need to alliterate my sermon points this morning. And instead, I just want to use the key thoughts and and the key phrases that are in this passage to sort of walk you through it and explain it 
to you. Let's start where verse 1 starts with the word so or, or therefore. Some of your versions use the word so, some use the word therefore. Both translations are pointing back to the preceding verses. Those verses that unpack how a believer is born again by the power of the living and abiding word of God. So within that word, therefore, Peter really is saying a lot. He's saying, because you have moved from death to life, because you were spiritually dead and the gospel preached to you was used by God to make you spiritually alive, because you are a whole new creation in Christ, you must respond to what I'm about to command. Once again, the indicative is driving the imperative. It's not, I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by God. It's, I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Never confuse that. Don't don't do a role reversal. Don't switch that around. Move now to the first imperative in the passage. It says, put away. Put away. Peter is commanding a definite break with sin here. When Peter says, put away or, or rid yourselves, he uses a verb that was used for stripping off dirty clothes. It was a term used of removing dirty, soiled, ruined garments. Remember when you were a little kid and you came home filthy and your mom made you strip down in the garage? Remember that? That's the language being used here. And in early Christian baptism, when people came to be baptized, it was customary to take the clothes they wore when they arrived and throw them away. And then after they came out of the baptism to give them new robes as a symbol of their newness of life. It was a custom that symbolized this truth. That in salvation, the old is put off and the new is put on. The old self is dead and buried. The new born again self now lives. Peter then goes on to name the five things that the Christian is to get rid of. If you are a Christian, you must strip these five things out of your life. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. These are the five things that have to come off in the garage, per se. Let's go through each one. Malice, all malice. The word in the Greek is the basic word for evil just means wickedness, general wickedness towards others. It's an all-inclusive word, evil, wickedness, baseness. Some have suggested it means disgracefulness. It really is just general pervasive wickedness out of which all other evil emerges. And Peter says it's got to be eliminated. What do I mean by eliminated? I mean confessed and repented. Deceit. Some of your versions use the word guile. It's a word that was originally used for a fish hook, which is perfect because a fish hook is a very deceitful thing. You put bait on it, a fish thinks he's going to get dinner, and he becomes dinner. Very deceitful. Which reminds me, you know, if, if, if T-bone steaks are ever just floating above your head, you know, don't do it. Don't grab after them. You know, it's a trap. There's something going on there. But deceit, deceit is a clever form of deliberate dishonesty. So those of you in business, or really in any field, deceit might be a temptation for you. And you can often frame it as, as being shrewd or, or, or being clever, but I, but I think you know, I think you know it's deceit. It's dishonesty, it's falsehood, it's seduction, it's treachery. Get rid of it. 
So deceit and malice are these first two things Peter lists. These are more attitudes. The next three things to put away are more actions. First, he says hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from the Greek theater, and it refers to the practice of putting on a mask and playing a part on stage. In a play, there might be eight parts, but only three actors. So they would wear masks to play the different parts. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something he is not. The most condemning words from Jesus to Israel's religious leaders were directed at their hypocrisy. Envy. One writer called envy the last sin a Christian will confess because it is so ugly. And I would actually modify that opinion just slightly. I'd say the last sin a Christian will confess is greed, but greed and envy are companion sins in many, many ways. People are so envious of what others, or not just of what others, but of others, it causes them to set about accumulating as much as they can so they too can have what they see others enjoying, so they too can obtain a certain status or a certain level of comfort, a certain degree of security. You know, social media is a breeding ground for envy. You see someone else's carefully selected holiday pictures or or vacation pictures or family pictures, and, and your heart almost instantly moves to envy. Why? Because the mundane non-filtered details of your life can't compete with the carefully selected highlights that are posted by others. And so you feel this envy. Envy is jealousy at the success of others. Or if you flip it around, when envy gets really ugly, it's personal happiness at another's misfortune. Envy. And then last, he lists slander of all kinds. This is a Greek word that literally means to speak down about someone. It's a far-reaching term. It includes gossip and backbiting and spreading rumors, passing along a bad report, taking cheap shots, using humor to strike others down, disparaging comments, unkind words. You know, you can kind of slander someone with just sort of a raised eyebrow, with an unfinished sentence, with a veiled accusation, you know, twisting the church, the, the, the truth, I mean, to make another person look bad using just subtle nuance to give a negative cast on a situation, judging others unfairly, putting others down to make yourself look good. It's all slander, slander of all kinds. And just to summarize these last three sins, Pastor Ray Pritchard says this. He says, slander is usually the fruit of envy. And because it is almost always done behind the back of another person, it is also the seedbed of hypocrisy. See how these things are intertwined? Peter says, put all these things away. Repent of them. They are all horizontal sins, which means they affect your personal relationships, and they are all antithetical to what we talked about last week, which is brotherly love. Peter David, in his commentary, says, these are not the vices of paganism, But these are community-destroying vices that are often tolerated by the modern church. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, slander of all kinds. But the command to put these things away is actually not the main verb in the passage. I know it comes first, 
but it's not the main verb. It's a supporting participle. These three verses are one long sentence, and the main verb is there, is what's next in your notes, long for, long for. Unlike the first supporting command to put away, the main command of this group of verses, it's more positive in nature. You know, since you've had this born-again experience, you should now do what babies do. You should drink milk. And babies, newborn babies, they don't just drink milk. They long for it. They crave it. They demand it. You know, when a baby wakes up hungry and a child is crying and he's wailing for the bottle, which is where a lot of you are living right now, I can empathize with your situation, but you go in and the baby is crying and fussing, he's, he's hangry is what we call it, he's both hungry and angry, he's so hungry that he's, that he's angry. When he sees you and, and he sees the bottle, what happens to the baby? The crying stops and they start getting excited. They start to fidget and kick, and they fixate on that bobble, bottle, and, and, you, and you pick them up, and even their mouth starts kind of moving, like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. And, they, and the silence and the calm that you experience as they start to take that bottle, man, it's, just, it's a priceless moment. You could just bottle that calm. That would be great. And that's the picture that Peter is painting for us here. Your approach to the Word of God should be like a baby crying out, craving its mother's milk. And just so you know, Milk here does not mean elementary truths that are only intended for immature believers. There are verses in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews 5 that, that use that kind of contrasting word picture that we should long for meat, not milk. That's not what's going on here. Here, Peter isn't trying to delineate between mature and immature believers. He's simply saying that the pure spiritual milk we all need is the Word of God. The Word is food for all believers, and it should be craved. And if you're a believer, if you love the Lord, the Word will be your favorite food. But you know, just like a lot of foods... You have to develop a taste for it, don't you? I don't know about you, but somehow, some way, I went like 36, 37 years of my life not ever going near an avocado. My sister, when she lived in California, she actually had an avocado tree in her backyard. I, I just didn't even really know what they were. I would, I would pick them, and I would throw them up against the, the brick wall in her backyard and just kind of watch them explode. Oh, this is kind of neat. This is fun. But somewhere along the way, I started eating avocados, and now I have to have them with everything. I put them on eggs, I put them on a hamburger, I put them on a sandwich, I put them in a burrito, whatever, on chicken, a steak. Yeah, that needs avocado. You know what this is missing? It's missing avocado. I mean, there's just something in the oils or what? They're kind of bland. I don't know why I crave them, but I crave them. Put some salt on them, some pepper. Man, that's a good thing, right? Jeremiah, the prophet, says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was in me, the, the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The believer is to delight in the words of God. Perhaps the richest text highlighting the believer's delight in God's word is Psalm 119. It's such a repeated theme in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in your Bible, and it's all about the beauty, necessity, and importance of the Bible, fittingly enough. And just listen to several verses from, from Psalm 119, verse 16. 
I shall delight in thy statues, statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Verse 24. Thy testimonies are also my delight. Verse 35. Make me walk in the path of commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47. I shall delight in thy commandments, which I love. Verse 48. I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments, which I love. Verse 72. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 92. If thy law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 97, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111, I have inherited thy testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love thy law. Verse 127, Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Verse 167, my soul keeps thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. And in verse 174, I long for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let me ask you a question. Does that express your heart? Is that the way you feel? Do you find your heart crying, Oh, how I love thy law. Is the word of God your delight more precious to you than silver, more precious to you than gold? It really is sad when Christians, when they have no appetite for God's word, but instead they just insist on being fed religious entertainment. They want to fill up on junk food that really does nothing for them. Because look what's at stake here. Look at the second half of verse 2. By it, by the milk that is the word, you may grow up into salvation. Spiritual growth will not come to you if your heart and your mind, if your life is not connected to God's word. This is the main issue in this text. You need to be fed because you need to what? You need to grow. It is tragic to see a malnourished person that doesn't grow. You know, they lack muscle tone, their vision suffers, their bones are weak, their hair is often falling out. It's tragic. And it's not just tragic to see that physical life who's malnourished. It's even more tragic to see a spiritual life like that. To see someone that has gone decades without any discernible spiritual growth. The verb here, by the way, is passive. And it could translate this way. This is really good. It says, crave this pure spiritual milk of the word that it may grow you. It's passive, that it may grow you. The word grows you. It's the thing that causes you to grow. It acts upon you. I'll just say this, in the last several years here, as you have experienced spiritual growth, as our church has experienced spiritual growth, as our church has experienced numerical growth, you know what has done that? The Word has done that. The preacher hasn't done that. The Word has done that. The Word is what causes growth. Three things that will bring spiritual growth to your life. First is suffering. You know, we hate suffering. We think it's terrible, but it draws you close to Jesus like nothing else, doesn't it? I have to comment on Daisha's testimony last week during our membership time. It was a beautiful expression 
of what it looks like to not shun suffering as God's grace and his work in your life, but to actually embrace it and recognize what God is doing through suffering. If you need to listen to that, we're going to put it online. You can find it on our website. It's a beautiful testimony. But suffering will bring spiritual growth. Serving will bring spiritual growth. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve, than when you are serving. And an intentional, consistent posture of service is going to grow your heart immensely. But then the third thing is the Word of God. The Word of God will bring growth. When you stop looking to the Bible for for simple motivation or simple inspiration, and you look to it to actually hear from God, to understand His work and His ways, you grow. The Reverend Billy Graham, who, who actually turns 98 years old this year, he was asked that if he could go back in his life and do anything differently, what would he do? Here's how he answered. He said, I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. It is far too easy for someone in my position to read the Bible only with an eye on a future sermon, overlooking the message that God has for me through its pages. You know, Graham, he didn't go to seminary. It's well documented that he felt that he didn't know the Bible well enough, that he didn't have a grasp on its many truths. This man who's considered the, the greatest spiritual giant of our generation, he says, the, the one thing I wish I would have done more of is not another crusade, not another trip to a far-off place, not another compelling sermon. The, the thing I wished I would have done more of is just read and studied the Bible. Is Christ-like spiritual maturity your ambition? Stop and think before you answer that. What is your priority in life? Toward what are you directing your time and your energy and your money? If a video crew were to follow you around for a week, if, a, if an accountant were to flip through your checkbook, would anyone conclude that your growth as a Christian is the most important thing in your life? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? If it is, if it is the ambition, if it is the priority in your life, then you will spend time in the Word. And right now you're asking, but where do I start? How, how do I even get going with that? Just start. If you're asking where to start, just start. Read a gospel. Read a Pauline letter. Read a passage. Reread a passage. Don't go for full-scale comprehension. Just seek the Spirit's illuminating power and go to the Word. Just start with the Word. I, I love coffee. Some of you know this. I love it a little too much, in fact. But I remember when I started drinking coffee, uh, you know, I had to load it up with all kinds of creamers and sugars and, and just ruin it, really, um, in order to drink it. But as I moved along, I began to just... I, I just wanted the coffee. I... I, I Put away the sweet and low. Put away the creamer. And now, if you give me anything but straight black coffee, I'm kind of like, uh, no thanks. I don't really want that. Well, we develop a taste for coffee. We develop a taste for the Word as we, as we read it, as we ingest it, as it begins to bring understanding to us. If you want to grow, spend time in the Word. If you know what that looks like, just start reading the Word. 
Read it with someone else. Read it with your spouse. You'll see its effects. Then that last phrase there in your notes. If indeed you have tasted. You know what he means by if indeed? It's a first class conditional in the Greek. It means since or because. So because you have tasted. Since you have tasted. When the word was used to give you new birth and you saw its power and beauty and perfection, since it's been a part of your experience in knowing that the Lord is good, go back to the word. Don't step away to something else. It's the word that is good. It's, it's the word that has power. It's the good stuff. And this concluding verse is based on Psalm 34, verse 8, where the psalmist writes, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And it really is saying this, that if in the past, if you have, if you have tasted in your own personal experience the kindness and the goodness and the grace of the Lord, and if you know how good that was and how wonderful it tasted and how blessed it was, then man, don't you crave more of that? Don't you want more? How can you not crave more? Let me tell you something, the more of God's goodness you enjoy on your spiritual palate, the greater will be your craving for more of it. People who are born again, that's you if you're a believer today, people who are born again, again, they put away their sin that keeps them from loving well, and they mature and grow by the power of God's word. If you don't put away your sin, you won't go to the word If you go to the Word, it will help you combat those sins and cause you to grow. It's like someone told me a long time ago, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. I hope you crave this book. I hope we crave this book. It holds all the cards for us. It will be a people of the Word. Let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being the fullness of all life. And because you have infinite life, you can give to us life. You can arrive at our deadness. You can show up in front of us as we're spiritual corpses and cause us to be born again. God, we thanks seems like a really small word, but we thank you for the way the, the word is active in all of that. And Lord, I, I pray that we'd be a people that are always continually returning to it, committed to understanding it and knowing it and to seeing it grow us individually and corporately. God, if there's anyone here that has never trusted in you, but they're understanding, they're seeing through the preached word, through reading the scriptures, that they need a relationship with you, that they need to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. I pray that they would do that today. And that might be somebody that's here for the first time, and that might be somebody that's been here hundreds of times. I pray that your word would do its work. We have confidence that, can, that it can accomplish exactly what you've set it out to do. We are privileged people, people who hold the very word of truth, the word of God in our hands and can access it and be given understanding by the Spirit. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jay. Um, just to remind you of a couple of things on the back of your bulletin, you'll see um, options, different classes that will be beginning next Sunday on the 13th. So check out those different Sunday school classes that will begin. Uh, also, remember to check out the table in the, in the fireside room right behind you there, um, information on International Justice Mission along with some info on the Enid Fight Slavery Sale coming up in April. Um, let's stand together, and uh, I'd like to leave you with these words. Typically, you will hear these words at the beginning of a corporate worship gathering, so I think they take on a different feel as we go from this place. Psalm 105, the first few verses say this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples as you go. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Go in peace. God bless you.